This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Pastors frequently cited COVID-19 as a source of political polarization and ideological conflict in focus groups, interviews, and survey comments. A pastor in Jackson, Mississippi, reflected, saying, We couldn't please anybody. You had this binary thinking about everything that was happening. A second pastor shared, Over the past 24 months, the most challenging aspect has been the emotional toll that COVID has brought onto the church staff. Between being both right and wrong with every decision we made, and the stress that comes with always feeling that you have to defend your decision to a group of congregants, the stress can become unbearable. Before COVID-19, the battle lines between politics, faith, and community in many American churches were already overlapping. During the pandemic, they seemed to disappear entirely. As you listen to this discussion, please understand that our desire is simply to shine a light on what actually happened. The lived experiences of countless pastors and congregations across America. Our sole aim is to facilitate reconciliation, healing, unity, and the proclamation of the gospel. And our prayer for the American church is the same as Jesus's in John chapter 17. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As you listen to these facts and testimonies, please do so with an open mind and a heart that longs for unity and healing. Welcome to COVID and the Church. I'm your host, Aaron Hill, editor of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Join us as we unpack the results of Church Salary and Arbor Research Group's landmark study on the impact of COVID-19 on the American church. Download your free copy and follow along with our discussion by visiting churchsalary.com slash COVID study. To discuss this charged topic, I'm joined by two researchers from the Arbor Research Group, Dr. Jesse Brown and Dr. Tyler Greenway. Jesse Brown currently serves as the Director of Residence Life at Indiana Tech. Before that, he served as the Dean of Students at both Taylor University and Huntington University. Tyler, you joined us back in our episode on technology. Tyler and Jesse, thank you for joining us today. Thanks Thanks for having us. us. Jesse, all three of us are credited as authors on this chapter, but you created the first draft, you led the charge, you get first billing. As I mentioned in the introduction, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that our goal is to help the church with this discussion, not hurt it. However, healing sometimes involves difficult physical therapy, even surgery. Everyone experienced political polarization during the pandemic, but help us understand what was unique about the leadership role of pastors. Why did polarization impact them so much more acutely. Yeah, as as I was reading through quotations from participants and trying to piece them together, see where they overlap. And then in my own experience, it's not uncommon for a pastor to be viewed as a social leader and a spiritual leader. COVID reminded us of the church as a business, whether it was if they had rentals, if they had a, a children's program or education center. Pastors had to make business decisions within the financial Mm. implications of COVID. They were also these social leaders. They were a shepherd. They were a small group facilitator. They were a team leader. And whether or not a pastor viewed themselves as a political leader, it became inevitable 
to be a political leader because most of what was communicated had some sort of political nuance to it. And all of those four roles overlapped with one another, put local pastors in very challenging crosshairs. It seemed like every decision mm-hmm. that they made had spiritual undertones running through it and lives were in the balance. The, the future, the movement of the gospel was held in the balance. And so that intrinsic communication of religious, business, social, and political was a very heavy weight put on pastors in a way that was not in the same way as a local business owner or a school teacher or a stay-at-home parent. Yeah. So, Jesse, there are a lot of quotes and comments on this topic, and we covered some of this in our first episode on pain and loss, but talk to me a little bit about what our research uncovered about pain and loss that polarization caused for pastors and churches. What it came down to was a sense of failure to please anyone, and that failure really Mm -hmm. caused a lot of pain. They felt criticized for not taking a side or taking a side. They sensed church members interpreting every one of the decisions they made as political and spiritual. It really caused a lot of questions about leaving the ministry, questions of burnout, questions of did they regret being in ministry. There seemed to be a significant loss of grace and hospitality in in a place that they've experienced a lot of grace and hospitality. Mm. At the end of the day, so many of them just lost friendships, whether that was friendships strictly through church relationships, such as board members or staff or longtime church members, but just the simple loss of friendship. At the end of the day, a pastor is a human being, uh, someone that is part of the body of Christ, and losing friendships over conflict or decisions weighed heavily upon so many pastors. You're either 100% for me or you're against me. It became a standard feeling that many pastors experienced. And that's a difficult place to live. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the hardest stories, the ones where it wasn't just the pastor that was impacted, but their family. Yeah. One church leader talking about having a baby during COVID and the expectations and requirements of senior leadership forced them to pretend like everything was normal. And as a result, his wife went through postpartum depression Just a lot of stories about impacts on not just the pastor, but their family as well. Yes. The fallout was was larger than just an individual. Yes. Yes, it was. So, Tyler, in one of your initial reports, you landed on a way to quantify polarization and analyze its impact on congregations. This was one of those things where we asked a question during the survey. We were interested to just know the answer. Didn't really have a plan to do this ahead of time, but honestly, I think it's one of the biggest insights and conclusions from the entire study. So I want to talk about the results and, and how they apply, but can you explain to us how you were able to group congregations together and then use those profiles to analyze the impact of polarization? Yeah, I think these findings are some of the most interesting from our study, so feel free to rein me in if I get too deep in the statistical weeds here. In our survey, uh, we asked ministry leaders uh, this question. We asked, overall, what were the reactions in your congregation when you introduced and implemented health measures? Assign a percentage to each response based on your congregation's reaction. And then they had five response options that they could assign a percentage to, and those percentages totaled 100%. So those five response options were extremely negative, somewhat negative, neither positive nor negative, somewhat positive, and extremely positive. So leaders then rated how negative, neutral, or positive their congregation was 
by assigning percentages to those categories. We'd put 100 in one, 20 in each, whatever it was. And we found a range of responses. Some congregations were entirely or mostly composed of people in each of these categories. Other congregations were much more varied. And given that range of responses, we used a statistical technique to identify different patterns or groups that shared common characteristics. So we've got a range of responses. Statistics help us identify patterns. And in this case, we found five different groups with common or similar characteristics. And those groups were an extremely positive group, a mixed positive group, a mostly neutral group, a mixed negative group, and an extremely negative group. And to clarify a bit there, uh, the extremely positive group is made up of congregations in which, on average, almost 70% of the people in the congregation reacted to health measures in an extremely positive way and about 16% on average reacted to health measures in a somewhat positive way. And we called that group the extremely positive group because there were so many positive responses. And then the other groups, mostly neutral, mixed negative, extremely negative, were composed of people whose reactions were mostly neutral, mixed negative, and extremely negative. I think the key ones there are the mixed positive and mixed negative because you have congregations where none of the groups is over 50% but it tilts in one way or another. But they tend to be more polarized because you've got 15 20% taking a negative reaction, 20 25 30% taking a positive reaction, and then you've got some people in the middle there. Uh, okay, so we've got these five groups in the paper. We write, ultimately, polarization itself within the congregation ended up being one of the best predictors of a negative or worse result for several questions. So walk me through some of these questions. I think the first one we tackled was, How did it impact whether pastors wanted to quit or resign? Yes. So this is where things get really interesting. I expected, and I think most of us would expect, that being in a congregation with mostly positive people or people who responded to health measures positively would be the best place to be. And being in a mostly negative congregation would be the worst place to be. I think that kind of intuitively makes sense. And it was true that leaders from congregations who responded negatively tended to consider quitting the most often. So 33% of leaders in an extremely negative congregation considered quitting, and 54% of leaders in a mixed negative congregation considered quitting. But leaders in positive congregations tended to consider quitting at fairly high rates as well. And this was somewhat surprising to me. 28% of leaders in an extremely positive congregation considered quitting, and 29% of leaders in a mixed positive congregation considered quitting as well. The congregation whose pastors were the least likely to consider quitting were those with neutral responses. The congregations were mostly made up of people who had neither positive nor negative responses to pandemic health measures. Yeah, I, I I found that very interesting. And also the differences between mixed negative and mixed positive, right? So you've got some polarization within the congregation, but if the scales tip to the mixed negative where more of the people are reacting negatively, that's where you see that quitting number. I mean, it shoots up to, what is that, like uh, 54%, pretty significant there. absolutely. So some of the questions that we asked dealt with uh, stress and mental health concerns. How did polarization impact the response of pastors in these areas? Yeah, here we found a similar but slightly different pattern. Leaders from congregations with neutral responses experienced the fewest mental health concerns and they coped well with daily stresses. So neutral congregations were still arguably the easiest to lead. 
Surprisingly, mm. though, leaders from the two more extreme categories, the congregations with extremely positive and extremely negative reactions, they coped the next best. And the leaders who had the most mental health concerns and the most difficulty coping with daily stresses were the leaders from congregations with mixed positive and even more so mixed negative reactions, those more polarized congregations. So uh, lots of stats there. I really encourage everyone, again, go download a copy of the report and you can look at some of these charts in the actual chapter. But what what were your takeaways? What were the sort of conclusions that we're able to land on in terms of the impact of, of polarization and our analysis using these five different congregational profiles? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of my big takeaways is this highlights the importance of research in the sense that I was surprised by our findings. This was not what I expected to find when we started digging into these data. I think another lesson uh, that we learn here is polarization affects churches and well, specifically leaders, and has an impact on them, particularly negative polarization. But polarization kind of across the board has a, a big impact on leaders. I think there's a lot more that we can continue learning about this, and I'm, I'm hoping it's something that we and others can continue to study uh, in terms of its impact on leaders and congregations. flesh out the impact of polarization on churches, and especially leaders, we asked some of the pastors who participated in the study to share their stories. The goal of highlighting these testimonies is not to wallow in the mistakes of the past or to assign blame, but to try and learn from these experiences so that we can move forward and make better decisions in the future. Hey, my name is Jeremy, and I'm a campus pastor. Jeremy, I wanted to talk to you because you shared in the survey that your church endured a split due to, as you described it, different political and theological perspectives. We've decided to keep your location and the name of your church private just so we don't draw too much attention. Can you share a little bit of that story and how COVID played a role in this split that your church went through? COVID kind of set up the context for really what the divide was in the church, or at least the, the environment for that, where we were in lockdown. So just being in relational community with each other was something that was so limited. And as 2020 rolled forward from mid-March to then closer into the summer and the cultural events that were going on in 2020... You know, you've got a ramped up political election, and so the people are starting to put their hearts behind a candidate on either side. And then I think the uh, the catalyst moment was the murder of George Floyd, and that began to be an issue that our church wanted to express uh, solidarity and compassion for the uh, Black community in their loss and in their pain. And as we were trying to do that very pastorally through. Uh, Facebook prayer times and that sort of thing, because we weren't gathering as a local church on Sundays at that moment. That's when members of the congregation began to say, I don't identify with what they're praying about, or I don't see it the way that you're praying about that. And through that isolation and that distance there, some of the conversations that would have happened in context with each other turned into assumptions, really. And so if I prayed uh, about it in a certain manner, it was just assumed, well, that I would be just going along uh, carte blanche 
in their minds with the opposing side. And so that's where, you know, the tensions kind of came in of like, what do we really think and believe and who are we really backing in this? And so when we were able to try and have some of those conversations and put those connections together, there was a whole lot of assumption about both sides and not necessarily believing the best. And also at that same moment, I think what was going on too was fear and anger, not necessarily directed at me per se or the church, but just at the whole environment of COVID and <laughs> being separated. And now you've got these political enemies. And, and so it just became this perfect storm of people being mad about everything and having little to no control in their minds on anything. And so if, if that's the case, we've got to fight about everything. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So all of that fighting and that conflict that was happening online over the politicization of all these issues. Walk me through how that actually played out in your church. Did this play out all remotely? What happened when you guys tried to come back? How did that unfold as you moved from 2020 into 2021? Yeah, I mean, certainly some of it was remote to begin with in terms of what we would pray on Facebook as we're leading up into a live stream of a COVID-19 worship service. But then it became a matter of phone calls and uh, trying to like at least get a voice to voice with one another. And I even think that's where some of the, the issue was of like, we're not in the room face to face with each other. We're reading and we're inflecting tone on it or meaning that may or may not have been there. But all those things kind of ramped up. And then also, you know, we just had a hard time getting together and being in space with one another to talk it out so that when we were able to actually sit in a backyard and start having a conversation or distanced out in a room, there was enough mistrust already under the bridge that the bridge couldn't hold. Mm. And things were just like, no, this is where I've identified and this is what I think you're saying and I don't want to hear anything else. And so we're going to go for that. Wow. So was this a significant number of families that decided to leave the church? It didn't start off with a significant number of families. It started off, at least in my context, with a small group of, uh, you can count them on one hand, of small group leaders in our church that I had been working with and discipling. And they came raising the question of like, what does the church really believe about this? I saw somebody post this on social media. And so that tells me one thing. This is somebody else post this on social media. What have you said? Like, we're against it. But they were very influential because they were leading a couple small groups. Mm. And in some sense, they're seeking clarity for what they're going to say to their small groups back about what the church affirms and leads. And in some sense, they're saying, we don't know if we want to be a part of this. And if you're going to, just to put clarity on, if you're going to be woke and say there's racialized violence in our country or systemic racism, well, that's clearly a leftist agenda and we're not going to be a part of that. So 
it started with a small group, but they had a lot of influence to lead a significant portion of the congregation with them when they did finally depart to go. So what sort of impact did that have on your church as restrictions started to lift and you started to be able to meet in person? And then where are you guys at now? In terms of impact of our church, George Floyd was murdered the last week of May of 2020. Our church started gathering back again in person. I think it was the second to last or last Sunday in June. So there was a month gap there. And our team was doing all the work to say, okay, who's ready to come back? And we had sent out surveys to the congregation. So we had this high volume of like, hey, most of the church is ready to come back and be in person. And we want to do that well and safely. So we've got to figure out some social distancing in the worship center. We've got to be able to accommodate the number of our church. We were almost at 350 on a weekend pre-COVID. And so our building is pretty tiny. <laughs> and we were we had been talking about, oh, we've got to start three services, all that beforehand when we've had two normally. So we were just kind of like, okay, if everybody's saying they're coming back, we've got to think three services so that we can get maybe 100 people max in the worship center and accommodate them and their kids and all of that. And yet the reality is once we started gathering again, maybe half of the 350 actually showed up, even less. So there was a little bit of a people saying, yes, we want to get back, but no, we don't know if we want to do it this way. Live stream is still a great option for us. We were still asking people to come masked. And so there was some folks that were like, I don't do that. And so they weren't going to show up that way. So it was, it was far less, I think it was maybe at least a third of our congregation coming back on those first few Sundays. And so it felt weird. And the people who were really concerned about the cultural and political issue, they were saying they were not coming back yet. The way we were doing it wasn't approachable for them yet. And when the dust did finally settle, it was really like they hadn't been back at all since the lockdown. And where's this group of folks that have been a part of leadership and involved in our church, where where are they at? And uh, the hard part of that was the emotional sense of saying, well, they're not with us anymore. And then the question is, well, why not? And here's some of the reasons behind that. So where are you guys now? It's been a couple years since this happened, obviously. Where is your church at? Not just in terms of attendance, but Mm -hmm. spiritually, emotionally, you're not the first church to go through a situation like this. So where are you guys at now? In one sense, something I, my wife and I have said very regularly over the last year or so is like our congregation today is a completely different congregation from what it was mm. three years ago. And there, there's still people that are with us and they're deeply committed and dearly love folks that have been here through the whole of it. But it feels like the good portion of the congregation is absolutely new. And so it's kind of this, who's the before COVID congregation and who's the, who's the, pri- you know, the 2021 and after kind of congregation. And so we're, uh, we're close to about 200 right now on a Sunday coming back. So there's a, there's been a, a slow and steady growth trend for us over the last three years but it's been slow. I think financially our church has been stronger than we've ever been before. Even with the significant loss of almost half the congregation in 2020, um, just financially our church has continued to be super generous and give above and beyond. And so that's been God's grace for us. One of the first episodes that we covered in the podcast, one of the first chapters in the report talks about the pain and the loss that pastors went through particularly part of it was tied to their inability to be in person. Like you said, it was to be able to have those in-person conversations. But a lot of pastors shared about emotional trauma, emotional pain, that a lot of 
wounds that were inflicted on them came from people inside their congregation. We talk about it in terms of friendly fire. Have you had to deal with anything related to that? Uh, any emotional processing, trauma, healing that you've had to go through, uh, you and or your family? Yeah, that we have. And that's that's definitely part of the story for us has just been that there's been this trauma. We didn't see it coming. And I don't think of ministry as a business. It's not just a transactional relationship. I guess I should say it that way. It's a relational thing. I, I view my calling to be a, a shepherd and to care for souls well. And so that means I'm invested in your life and I, I want to be, and I want to I know the peaks and the valleys of your heart. And I want you to know me well. And so whenever there's a, a departure like that, it's a loss, right? It's something that, that you have to lament and you have to grieve. And I think there's still a part of me that's working through that and still trying to figure out how to grieve that well and lament that. I mean, I lost friends and people that I had, you know, if you had told me in May of 2020 that the guys that I would sit around the table that's here in my office with and discuss life and ministry, I would have told you I was, we're in the foxhole together. It's going to be ride or die, <laughs> if you will. Um, and we're going to, we're going to sunset and ministry together to the glory of God. And then six months later, it's like, I don't even know you guys. I don't feel like I know you. Maybe you don't even feel like you know me. And like, why is this break here that's so big? A lot of things were just lost in that. And so that's where I've tried to do work with counselors and therapists to kind of navigate through that. I've got a really helpful spiritual director who's been probably one of the best coaches in my ministry life for me there. And so I'm grateful for them. Um, but those relationships are things that you've got to figure out what happens with that and how to rebuild and grow from there. And so in some ways, the last three years have been a lot of season of the Lord putting us into this sense of exile so that we can really experience his grace and sufficiency. And I'm having to relearn kind of the emerging from exile back into healthy uh, friendships and relationships with people in the church so that, so that my heart can continue to thrive and grow. So, Jesse, you talk in the chapter about the wages of either-or thinking and the erosion of middle ground and trust. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a lot to talk about here, but walk us through what our research uncovered about this binary thinking, as one pastor described it. Yeah, what it came down to was our side and their side, or us and them. Mm. It really became A or B, B or A. And I think the church has a history of working through either or thinking. There's been a number of issues throughout the church's history, issues of LGBTQ, clergy, marriage, all sorts of issues. I think one of the challenges of COVID was it was hard to get official statements by a denomination or some position. I think the pace in which COVID happened, the rapid pace in which COVID occurred and the relationship with local governments, local and state governments, it amplified the options from A, B, and C to just A and B. We didn't have enough time to develop other sides. In the end, it with that either-or thinking, there's that passage in Luke's gospel, the Pharisee in prayer says, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like a mask wearer. God, I thank you that I'm not like a anti-vaxxer. God, I thank you that I'm not like a vaxxer. And that's really some of what came to the surface as we talk with pastors that became difficult for pastors to then navigate only two options. Yeah, one of the pastors described how grace, nuance, and trust in pastoral decisions evaporated overnight. Yes. One of the potential causes of this that you cite in the chapter was what several pastors called unhealthy allegiances and idols. What did pastors report in focus groups and interviews about these conflicting allegiances and idols? I know this was a theme that kept coming up. Yeah, there were some folks in Oregon who first introduced that word into some of the data where as the church leadership was navigating COVID protocol, the church leadership discerned that the congregation was acting as if protocol was an idol. Protocol was something that required more significant allegiance than than they assumed it would be, uh, where other allegiances mm-hmm. such as to uh, one another, coming to church, working through difficulties, working through grievances, those became pushed down and other allegiances such as, do you agree with me on vaccinations or masks became a greater form of allegiance. And in church communities, we have a word for that where there is an idol or idolatry, where there mm. is an inappropriate allegiance above what our allegiance should be, should be to to Christ, should be to one another. And they hadn't realized this. This is something that really crystallized and became very acute during COVID. One of the pastors talked about, it seemed like all was going well, uh, but shortly into the pandemic, concerns arose, took us by surprise. It's like things were bubbling under the surface and they came out during COVID. Some of the things that were cited, uh, I don't necessarily want to go into them because I don't want to get too political, but there are definitely a number of factors that were cited. I think it's easy to overlook some of the stuff that was happening. A number of the people cited, not just COVID, but uh, Black Lives Matters protests that were happening during the summer mm-hmm. caused a lot of polarization mm-hmm. with people taking opinions on that. And then there were a number of pastors that cited what they felt was a rise in Christian nationalism. Sure. So I feel like it's just worth noting that there there were a range of opinions that people cited as far as that is concerned, but they felt that people were sorting themselves into ideological camps yes. and battle lines were being drawn within the church. And. As a faithful follower, we want to embody that faithfulness in all areas of our lives. And so it's not surprising that there are ramifications. If we believe in the saving power of the gospel, therefore, I'm going to behave in these ways. I'm, the church is going to behave in these ways. We are going to think in these ways. And so as the body of Christ was discerning paths forward, pulling from Scripture, pulling from history, pulling from experience, pulling from other ideologies such as fear or faith. There became ways in which congregations or parts of congregations decided to align themselves. And sometimes it seemed as if their alignment was connected to Christ. And it seemed as if sometimes their alignment was connected to something beyond Christ. There's something more important than Christ in their life or the the expression of the gospel. So one of the churches that stood out in the survey had an interesting policy, and I'm not necessarily lifting it up because as you and I were discussing before the podcast, Jesse, I think this would be a hard needle to thread. Right. But one of the churches mentioned that their policy was simply, we just don't do politics here. Quote, 
We don't talk about Trump or Biden or any other politician. And this is a policy that they have, not just within the church, but within their staff as well. Their staff are not allowed to talk about these things. Right. And for them, they feel like it gives them this uh, credence or this authority to speak because people know that they're not coming from a political standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a lot of challenges with that. But one of the passages that some people quoted and we felt was sort of applicable because a lot of these conflicts led to splits or an exodus of people from the church mm-hmm. is just to remind ourselves of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about that each parts of the body have honor and dignity, mm-hmm. and the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And I know that that's easier said than done in the church, but I think it's helpful to recognize, especially looking back, that dividing the church over what proved to be temporary external pressures didn't help anybody. It certainly didn't help the mission of the church. And nobody really wins when we attack and divide each other. Yeah. The word that I really prefer is the idea of harmony. So this idea of harmony Mm. has the disparate parts working in unity with one another. So it it doesn't mean it's, it's greater than unity, it's greater than uniformity, but it's a C, E, and a G working together to make a greater chord. And so, you know, our musicians and choir directors know this more than I do, but that's where that working together as a diverse body works in harmony with one another. And that to me seems to be an amazing example of of a way forward. Hey, James Racine here, uh, lead pastor of All People's Church in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. We are part of the All People's Church movement based out of San Diego, California. James, in the survey, you shared that one of the biggest challenges you and your church faced during the pandemic was providing ministry to a multicultural, multi-generational, politically mixed congregation, and that it was almost impossible to meet the needs, to fully meet the needs and cater to the convictions of everyone in the church. And as a result of that, you ended up losing people on the ends of the political spectrum on the far left and on the far right. Walk me through the struggles that you guys faced at All Peoples between 2020 and 2022. How did polarization impact your church and make it harder for you to shepherd this divided flock? You know, San Diego is a very interesting place because on one hand, you've got these free spirit, you know, uh, people who love the beach and love being outdoors and granola. But then you also have a very conservative move there with the military bases and a lot of uh, ministries based out of Southern California. And so you you really have a mix of people that's very non-monoculture. So what we experienced was there was such a demanding spirit on both ends of the spectrum that wanted you to take sides, right? Like wanted you to voice their their chief concerns, whether that was pro-medical, affirming that, hey, COVID is real. We need to take measures. We need to honor the medical experts. And then on the other end, you had people saying, this is a joke and it's not real. And the government is trying to control us. And it's, you know, this is all a conspiracy. And so it was just this demanding spirit that was asking us as a church to pick sides. And we knew that there would just be no winning that battle. And so I was so proud of our senior pastor, Robert, 
sitting front row as an associate pastor, watching him lead through this time, he just really chose to pray and ask, okay, Jesus, what are you calling us to do? And he really said, we're not going to depart from the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, loving God and loving people. And so we're not going to get overly political about this and jumping into any kind of conspiracy theories or, or theories about the origins of COVID and the intentions of the government behind COVID. And that obviously disappointed some people. And so on the far right, you had people who opted to go to far more conservative churches or, or move out of state. We saw a lot of that happen, no less than a dozen core families, you know, we saw move on from our church. And then on the left end of the spectrum, people who would consider themselves maybe more liberal leaning, they were typically the people that refrained from engaging in our hybrid environments that required masks, but were still choosing to gather for worship as much as we could even in a limited space with you know, social distancing. And some of them were frustrated by our lack of measures. And I think that they voiced their frustration by not attending. Mm. And I would say fewer of those people left. You know, you didn't have as much of an exodus of people going to more liberal states or finding churches that were more liberal because those churches were meeting virtually. And we still offered that as an option. And so those people were just much slower to return and so we lived in that tension of, okay, mm. how do we honor God above all things and what he's calling us to do to be the church, to love God and to love people well? So walk me through some of the decisions that you guys had to make. I know in California, things were shut down there for a while. Did you guys have to shut down completely? Did you mm -hmm. come back? What did that look like in your congregation? Because I, I know it was different for every congregation, but sure. trying to you know navigate that maze of decisions uh, was challenging and might sure. be helpful to hear some of the key decisions that you guys had to make along the way. So Southern California has the blessing of a climate that allows people to meet outdoors. And so you know, early spring or into the fall then still in 2020, where we were still under a lot of restrictions, we were able to meet outdoors, which allowed us to start gathering sooner. So we erected a massive tent structure uh, that just came down a couple months ago, actually. And so oh, that wow. stayed with us for quite some time. And we met outdoors, first socially distanced outdoors, and then fully assimilated back to normal spacing outdoors. And then we started offering an indoor and an outdoor option. And we actually found it was kind of a, a blessing in disguise because the tent had a higher seating capacity than our indoor sanctuary. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so uh, where we were running before COVID four services, we were able to run just two services on Sundays. One of the things we did do that I think was important was giving the groups in our church. So that's like life group, freedom groups. We gave them more autonomy to determine how they were going to meet. And so uh, it's it can be messy because people might post stuff on Instagram and be like, wait, they're meeting and they're not masking, you know? And, and then there's, of course, judgments that rise up on either end when you see things. And so I think that we had to navigate decisions corporately and we resolved to be really in step with the greater body of Christ in Southern California. So there's an incredible network of pastors in Southern California that talk, gather, pray on a regular basis. And so there was a lot of collaboration of, hey, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? And all peoples, I would say, kind of fell in the middle. We weren't the first ones to open, but we were certainly not the last ones to open. And, you know, our, our governor was a very polarizing individual. And 
all of us on staff, of course, have our own political convictions and what we believe, but we chose to keep those behind closed doors, that we didn't abuse the pulpit and use it as an opportunity to promote our own political ideology one way or the other. And so I really appreciated that, you know, and it's so tempting to lose sight of Jesus and making disciples and church planting and to give into the the spirit of the age and that demanding spirit for choose a side, whose side are you on, you know? And the other interesting thing I would just say, Aaron, that we discovered was all peoples actually had a second wave of people leaving. So I, I would say that we fared well at the beginning more than most churches where we lost a handful of people, but it wasn't until about a year to two years later where some other core families made decisions after things opened back up uh, mm-hmm. where they're like, you know what, I'm out. I want to move to a more conservative state. You know, the cost of living is very high in Southern California. And so I think COVID was one of the factors, but it's not the only factor for us losing people. And so we had the second wave that hit us just as hard, if not harder. And that was really devastating for us. And so some of the consequences of COVID were were later felt. The repercussions were later felt. You've got a new church plant. You guys are going to be kicking off in October, which is exciting up there in the Twin Cities. Are there any lessons that you're taking from what you experienced at All Peoples in San Diego, things that you're strategizing about with relation to polarization, or any of the lessons that you've learned that you're going to be trying to apply here in this new church plant? You know, one of the things I've just observed is that, in general, cultural Christianity really has shifted away from kind of this we just go to church on Sundays and maybe that obligation to go to church and loosely attend. I think we've lost a lot of the periphery of people that were loosely involved in churches. And so in, in a good way, you had more of a concentrated body who were really committed to fellowship and to the mission of the church. But it, it also became more difficult to just kind of pop up a production and then expect people just to come and be like, oh, a church service. I want to spend my Sunday three hours at a church service instead of being at the beach or up at the cabin. And so in terms of attracting people, to be honest, we've given up on that model of, hey, we're going to try to attract people to a a service, a production. And so our strategy here is we're going to go where people are. And so uh, we've been meeting in homes now for the past month. And our team that we planted with, apart from me, I'm the only one who's full-time with the church, Everybody else is is vocational in their spheres of influence. And so, you know, we have a a nurse, we have a speech pathologist, a music therapist, uh, somebody in the restaurant industry, and they're just Mm. working their jobs, meeting people and inviting them to come and study the Bible together. Or, hey, let's get together at your house. And so we're doing more of what we call DBS, Discovery Bible Studies, out in the community. We're looking for spaces that people are already congregating and being more evangelistic that way. And we've seen a lot of hunger for that, people that are eager to pursue spiritual conversations, pursue faith, but they just don't feel any pressure to go to church on Sundays. Mm. And so we're not expecting to grow based off of uh, we put on a good show on Sundays.
One of the other sections that I want to discuss in this chapter is how scripture was used to frame and inform polarization. And this was fascinating because we didn't ask pastors to answer this question. We didn't ask them anything about it. They just supplied these verses as they reflected on how scripture was used and perhaps misused within their own congregations. It was obviously something that stood out to them that they had to deal with. So walk us through some of the verses that were quoted uh, by pastors during our research and focus groups and in the surveys, and how the framing of Scripture itself, in many cases, established or reinforced battle lines within the congregation. Yeah, it it seemed as if each side drew upon Scripture to uh, validate their point of view. And so whether it's Hebrews 10.25, where we we are challenged to do not neglect meeting together. It became this rallying point of here is the, you know, the author of Hebrews challenging us, no matter what, do not neglect meeting together and do not neglect meeting together in spite of whatever challenges you may face. And mm. there were challenges about the Great Commission. One pastor quoted, we must not allow any earthly cause to slow us down or scale back our efforts to make disciples of God in the lives of people all around the world. So there was this continued fervor for the sharing of the gospel. One that I thought was an especially challenging one was the Second Timothy passage when Paul is talking about do not be afraid. It became a faith over fear. Are we going to have mm. faith that we will be safe or are we going to be afraid? Who are we going to believe in? Who are we going to have trust in? And that faith over fear conversation became very acute. There were also folks talking about love, that what is most important is that we love one another, referring back to any of the one another's in the New Testament, talking about whether it's First John 4 or Galatians 6, that we are to embody the sacrificial love and to carry one another's burdens. And that could be whether that is getting groceries or carrying other burdens for someone. And so that yeah. commandment to bear with one another became a critical rallying point for churches. The challenge with some of these scriptures, as pastors pointed out, was when you frame all these decisions in terms of faith versus fear or engagement versus retreat, then as soon as you adopt one of these scriptures and you adopt this binary interpretation, mm-hmm. then it's like, well, are you opposed to the Great Commission? Mm-hmm. Are you, yes. are you are you saying that you want to be afraid? And as soon as yeah. you adopt that framing, any room for discussion or nuance or focus on, well, maybe there's another way we can continue right. to accomplish the Great Commission in spite of the challenges and the restrictions being placed on us. Or maybe there's another way that we can make wise decisions, just like we wear seatbelts when we put our kids in the car. Right. But that doesn't mean that we're necessarily living in fear. But the framing itself of these scripture verses, in a lot of the ways the pastors described it, was part of the issue. As soon as you adopt that framing, you're opposed to Paul's words or to Jesus's words or something like that. And it really hamstrings your ability to have discussions about these topics. Yeah, and and a a word like fear, so... There is such a thing as fear, but what's the difference between fear and caution or fear and respect, fear and apprehension, fear and uncertainty? Those may sound like fear, but they're not the same thing as being afraid of. And so even if a pastor was seen as making a fearful choice, maybe it really was a cautious choice and maybe it was a, Mm. a safe 
choice. But again, that binary thinking automatically, you know, whatever the, that color of fear was, if it's blue, if it, even if it was light blue, it got colored as blue. And so yeah. it didn't matter what it was. We threw out all the shades of blue and you only had one color for blue. And it was fear. And that's what ended up yeah. causing a lot of weight for clergy and decision makers. I want to thank you for joining us today. When I read your quote in our survey, honestly, my heart dropped. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that your quote was one of the reasons why I felt such a strong burden to share the testimonies of pastors and lay leaders through both the report and now through this podcast. So in the seventh chapter of the report, which we've been talking about, you share that for you and your family, the pandemic was, quote, a horrible undoing of a Bible-centered church, and that you felt like your church at the time had become a stench to our town. So walk me through your story. I don't think we want to mention the name of the church or the name of your town, but what happened during the pandemic? Well, without rehashing things too far back, I was in leadership in this church, had been for many years. There was an immediate divide among the congregation, as well as some of the leadership, as to gathering together once the immediate shutdown was over. And ultimately, the decision was made by the congregation to avoid any of the mandates requiring mask usage. And after several large congregational meetings, voicing my concern over what we were doing, not only because of a governmental mandate, but because of our position in the community and other things like that, I felt I could no longer stay in that church and be part of their leadership. So ultimately, my family and I uh, stepped away from that church. So one of the findings that we had was that the main thing that negatively impacted churches was polarization over pandemic health measures. It sounds like that's what happened in your church, but it was a question of both whether you were going to resume in-person meetings and some of the things like masking and social distancing. Is that correct? That's correct. and. It would be short-sighted of me not to also say that there was immediate politicizing of this issue, and that became interwoven with, one, the simple health guideline of wearing a mask, and then built around conspiracies and all the other things that we've become quite familiar with over the last couple of years. It became so intertwined that you, you could not separate one from the other within the congregation. Clarify for me, because the pandemic spanned uh, technically from 2020 to 2022, what was the time frame in which all of this was occurring? Because obviously we had the lockdown in early spring, like in April. When did you guys begin to have discussions about resuming in-person meetings? And when did this all come to a head? We went virtual like everyone did. So, you know, this is mid-March and now we're approaching the summer and the push is to gather again along with summer ministries like VBS. And there was immediate pushback as to, we are not going to do this virtually. We are going to get our kids together and summer's here and we'll do most of our stuff outside. So at least we're not within confines of a building. So we're June of 2020. We're not that far away from the shutdown. And into the summer, it did allow for outdoor gatherings, 
And even at those, some remained masked and most did not wear masks. So polarization even was visible as we tried to gather in somewhat a safe community. So that was a decision. You guys were meeting outdoors for a while, but then eventually things start to get colder as you move into the fall. And then the question was moving inside, I'm guessing. Yeah, that was part of it. There was a small group that actually asked for the church to run a masked service along with the unmasked. If they wanted to go that direction, at least let's keep fellowship open to those wanting to mask. And the comment that came back was, we're not going to do that because there's too much dividing in the church over that issue. And there's irony in that statement and the fact that we're already divided. Why, Why not have a service for the people that wanted to wear a mask? So anyway, a mask service was not part of the moving forward position of the church. So they went to the, you know, the mask optional title, which became kind of a mantra for everything from then on. So you mentioned that this was a hard time for your family. Can you talk about that a little bit? What was the impact on you and your family? I'm guessing you had been at this church for a while. You told me earlier that you guys are no longer attending this congregation. You're uh, at another church in the area Talk to me a little bit about the impact on your family. There was emotional impact. People were hurt, surprised by what others would say about you. Comments were made. Obviously, social media was ripe for poor information being shared and directed at others and name calling of people that wore masks or eventually got vaccinations and all of those kinds of things. And I have children who are in healthcare, so they were seeing the effects of the pandemic and the response to Christians as they came to the hospital asking for care. Mm -hmm. So they saw it from even a different perspective than maybe I did as a church leader. And so ultimately, the whole crew, my whole family and kids, grandkids, chose to step away. Oh, wow. So is your extended family as well? Yes. Yeah. So has this impacted the faith of you and your family at all? Or is this just been a situation where you're trying to find a new church home in the town? It has not weakened our faith at all. In fact, in many ways, it's strengthened it. You know, we were driven to scripture, spent a lot of time studying it, making sure that at least to our knowledge, we understood what we ought to do. And so that I would call it a little bit of, you kind of felt like a pariah. And soon you became outside the fellowships looking in and you wore somewhat of a label. That was very disheartening. Was there a specific breaking point or turning point? What was the sort of watershed moment for you, given that you had been involved in leadership and had been participating in these decisions? The church we were attending took a congregational vote. They did not leave it up to leadership. The whole congregation voted, and the congregation voted not to follow any governmental mandates regarding health. And and that was kind of the last thing for us to decide, you know, this this probably isn't where we belong right now. There were some other things, Aaron, in relation to, as I mentioned, I have family members involved in local health care here. And the irony of some of that, and I think that added to, to our, I would say to degree of feeling of disgust, was our Christian friends that decided wearing masks was a face diaper or whatever they wanted to call it. And yet, when COVID hit them or their family, they were at the hospital emergency room demanding care, not willing to follow the guidelines of the hospital. Some, in full view of my family members, were just very rude and very, very poor witnesses of 
of the gospel. So you put that all together and you say, wait a second, this is not what the church has been called to do. And I think going back to my quote of uh, not being salt and light, we, we miss this opportunity in the mission of our church. Even as a lay leader, it's very simple. We're, we're there to equip the body and we are there to share the gospel. And as a result of what we witnessed, we were doing neither. We felt as a family, I certainly felt as an individual, that the church in this local context, and this isn't fair to say that all the churches had the same kind of problem, they missed a wonderful opportunity to do something significant in a community that was under a lot of stress. As we wrap up and we look for hope amid the frustration, I'm back to talk to Tyler and Jesse. Tyler, is there any good news on the polarization front? Did we uncover any glimpses of positive congregational responses or outcomes that might serve as a compass for other churches that are still struggling with this issue? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. When we quantify polarization using the five categories I mentioned earlier, we did find that close to 40% of congregations were in agreement in the reaction to health measures. So not every congregation was polarized, and those like-minded congregations did benefit from that unity. So I think one takeaway from that finding is that unity, when it's possible and when it's healthy, does bring with it some benefits. Another takeaway is how we can prepare for polarization. I, I don't want anyone listening to this podcast thinking they need to like get in line or that there shouldn't be any diversity of belief within the church. Jesse, I really like the word harmony that you used earlier. I, I, I need to think more about that. Uh, I, I think these findings teach us that polarization and negative reactions create stress and difficulties for ministry leaders. So when you recognize these kinds of reactions in your congregation, even if you disagree with your pastor, and maybe especially if you disagree with your pastor, it might be helpful to reach out, check in with them, and remind them that you care for them. One of the lay leaders that we interviewed for this episode talked about the point at which they knew they had to leave the church was when the church took a vote on how they were going to react to some of these pandemic health measures, and that the decision was well, if we vote this way, this is the way it has to be for the entire congregation. And so in some ways, forcing everyone to take one stance can actually cause more conflict. By forcing everyone to think alike, you actually kill the harmony, like Jesse was talking about. Jesse, I know this was a hard chapter to write, and this is a hard topic to discuss. Uh, not a whole lot of people volunteered to be on this episode of the podcast. Um, well, I'm grateful to be here. I know everybody's not going to see eye to eye on this, uh, to put it lightly, and I know that we intentionally tried to stay away from assigning blame and, and naming political parties, but there were sort of two basic paths that every congregation could take, one towards unity uh, or harmony, as you said, and one towards polarization. What are your takeaways as you reflect back on this topic and the research? Are there any lessons that pastors and churches can learn as we prepare for what is shaping up to be? another incredibly challenging and contentious presidential election in 2024. I think each of us are familiar with having some sort of a mysterious ache in our body. And if we have this ache in my arm and it stays there over time, there's going to be something that I may do. I'm going to go see a specialist. I'm going to go see a doctor. I'm going to learn some exercises. I'm going to go to the interwebs. 
I think good research, good reflection can lead us to better action. So I think the, the purpose of this project is to sit down, talk with one another, and listen and see what paths we can find moving forward. Uh, just as we would go to a doctor and say, man, my elbow really hurts, or gosh, 2020 you know, was really hard. I, I wish I didn't have so much conflict with people. The sitting and reflecting on what we've done, how we've treated one another, how I reacted, how I increased polarization or increased harm, I don't want to do that anymore. And so to sit back and reflect, and hopefully that's what this whole project is going to help us do is give us better words and one, to see that we're not alone, but also to be able to see some paths, some paths forward. I think at the end of the day, we are the body of Christ. And here we are in the last of the summer of 2023. We are the divine strategy to incarnate God's love with our hands and feet to one another. And through all of our missteps or best steps, we are still called upon to be that divine reflection of love. I think we can do love better today than we did yesterday. We can do love tomorrow better than we did today. And so when I think about the church and its role in creating harmony, creating love, creating caring communities where we can support and care for one another, the church is the best option. We just need to live into that that best option. We need to live into that incarnational calling to be the hands and feet. And hopefully those hands and feet bring not only good news, but healing touches and hands of comfort and hands of healing. So that's, to me, no matter where we've been, we always have the opportunity to do it better tomorrow through the power of the Spirit. Well, I want to thank both of you for contributing to this chapter, to the research. This was obviously one of those topics we kind of knew was going to come up when we started doing the research, but we didn't really, like you said, Tyler, we didn't really have a good handle on uh, on what to find. And And as I've said in other episodes, one of the most significant findings was also what we were able to disprove, which was that the severity of the state restrictions did not significantly play a role in the outcome for churches. It was actually just more how they responded. So obviously some churches didn't have as much to respond to, but even churches that were located in states where they had much harsher restrictions, much more stringent guidelines to follow, if the congregation reacted positively and, and followed their leaders and, and there was, like we said, some of these neutral reactions, they were able to have positive outcomes. And so for me, I, I'm just encouraged to know that we are not subject to these external forces, that we can be salt and light out in the world, and we just have to figure out the best way to do that given the constraints that the world places upon us. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just want to thank you guys again for joining us uh, and for contributing. So uh, thank you again. Sure thing. Thanks for having us. COVID and the Church is a production of Church Salary, a ministry of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Aaron Hill, Terry Linhart, and Matt Stevens. Host, Aaron Hill. COVID and the Church is produced in conjunction with the Arbor Research Group and funded by the Lilly Endowment Incorporated through a grant from the Economic Challenges Facing Pastoral Leaders Initiative. Director for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Tyler Bradford Wright is our audio engineer, editor, and composer. Artwork provided by Ryan Johnson. And our art director is Sarah Gordon.